0: Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, V. Thanks, Sarah. Well, thanks for coming tonight. Excited to kick off the book of Ephesians tonight. And to do that, I want you to imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the church in Ephesus in 62 AD. I know only a couple of you, Fritz, were alive all the way back then. Um, So for the rest of us, I want you to imagine... Sorry, Fritz. It took me one line and I'm already throwing you under the bus. So... Imagine what it was like to be a Christian in the church at Ephesus in 62 AD. Jesus had died on the cross just 30 years prior. Christianity was totally in its infancy, and it was exploding around the world. But Jesus died in Jerusalem, and Ephesus was almost 2,000 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So it took a little while for the good news of the gospel to make make it all the way to Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, what you and I call Turkey, right on the western edge, right on the Aegean Sea. Ephesus, back in the first century, was one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. It was probably the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. 250,000 people lived there at the time. And it was right at the crossroads of a trade route between uh, the Middle East, between Africa. So it was an important city. that had a great harbor right on the Aegean Sea. But it wasn't, it wasn't trade that made Ephesus thrive. It was actually religion. Ephesus was the center of worship for a woman named, or a Greek goddess named Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of uh, fertility, and she was a big deal. Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. It was larger than an American football field. It was one of the largest known buildings of antiquity. And worshipers would flock from all around the world to worship Artemis in Ephesus. And if you would have lived in Ephesus, there was, this, there was this pride that was associated with being in Ephesus. There was this opulence, this wealth that was unparalleled in the Roman Empire. Being an Ephesian was a big deal. But for us to imagine what it would have been like to be in the church of Ephesus in 62 AD, what I want to do is just paint a couple of portraits, a couple of pictures of a couple of people that could have been in the church at Ephesus. Two of them are going to be historical figures, Priscilla and Timothy. Two others are actually going to be individuals that I've invented, I've created, based on Acts 18 to 20, based on the historical record, individuals that I think were likely to be involved in the church at Ephesus. I think that might give us a picture of what this early church environment was like. But to start, I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be Priscilla. You know Priscilla. She and her husband, Aquila, met Paul in Acts chapter 17. They were tent makers by trade. Paul was also a tent maker, so they bonded over an ocu- their occupation and they became fast friends because Paul didn't just preach. No, he paid his way as a missionary, giving an incredible gift to the churches that he served. They didn't need to financially support him. So he and Priscilla and Aquila and Corinth, they're making tents together and they became friends like that, instant fast friends, the kind of friends, kindred spirits where you know you're going to be friends for life. Well, Aquila and Priscilla, they follow Paul to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. Paul's not there for very long, maybe a couple weeks. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla partially in charge of the church in Ephesus, and Paul leaves. That's their first emotional goodbye. It's not too much longer, Acts 18, that Paul meanders back to Ephesus, but this time Paul is in Ephesus for two and a half years. And for those two and a half years, the gospel completely explodes in Ephesus. People are getting saved left and right. Priscilla and Aquila, they're still leaders in the church. I can only imagine that Priscilla was discipling people all day, every day when she wasn't making tents. It's a busy schedule. And Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they fought, they battled for the souls of the people in Ephesus, and they saw an incredible multitude come to faith. But after two and a half years, it was time for Paul to be done in Ephesus and travel to another city. That was emotional goodbye number two. They didn't weren't sure if they would ever see Paul again. A couple years later, Paul is traveling by Ephesus, doesn't have time to go to Ephesus. He goes to Miletus instead. He Snapchats all the leaders in the Ephesian church and says, hey, I'm going to be in Ephesus, or I'm going to be in Miletus, come and meet me there. So that's what they do. I'm assuming Paul and Aquila, and Priscilla, that they were in this group that Paul reached out to, and they come to say hello to Paul. And you can imagine, they didn't think they'd ever see him again. His best friends, his co-laborers in the faith. And Paul gives them what we might call a, a commencement speech, this address. It's not very long. He basically says, be unified, stand firm in the faith. But he finishes his speech with maybe the most depressing line. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I promise I will never see you again this side of heaven. Not only was it a commencement speech, it was a funeral. Paul tells his best friends, I'm not going to see again, this is it. You can imagine the tears, you can imagine the group hug, you can imagine the emotional goodbye. In 62 AD, it had been five years since Priscilla and Aquila had seen Pastor Paul and they desperately missed him. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be a man named Felix. Not a historical figure, someone I've invented, but Felix. He was a magician. wasn't just any magician, he was a sorcerer. He was a professor of magic at the university in Ephesus. Not only was Ephesus the center of worship of Artemis, but it was the center for the dark arts, the center of sorcery. People would come from all around the world, and they would learn about magic in Ephesus. And I imagine that they learned from this man, Professor Felix. He was brilliant. He was better at magic than anyone else in town. He was maybe the wealthiest sorcerer, and his students knew that he was good, that he wasn't just making it up. Now, when you were a professor, when you taught, when you would lecture, you wouldn't lecture during the heat of the day. You would lecture in the morning when it was cool, in the evening that was cool, and then in the middle of the day, everyone would take a break. And Felix, he lectured across the hall from a man named Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus did the same thing. Tyrannus He didn't preach in the middle of the day. So his lecture hall was open. So there was this short Jewish man named Paul. And Paul wanted to lecture in the middle of the day. He got kicked out of the synagogue. So he rents space from the hall of Tyrannus, right across the hall from Felix. And he starts lecturing about Jesus, about this Jewish sect called the Way. And here's what happened. Felix would finish teaching Magic 301, and then his students would go from his class and they'd go to listen to Professor Paul. And they'd stop coming to his class. And Felix lost student after student after student. He lost paying customer after paying customer after paying customer. And he was ticked. He thought he was the best magic professor around. So he goes home. He gripes to his wife and says, I can't believe about this Paul guy. We've got to get him out of town. And his wife very wisely says, don't judge him before you haven't heard him teach. So the next day after he's done lecturing in the heat of the day, instead of taking a siesta, he goes to Professor Paul's class and he's cut to the heart. For the first time, he realizes he's not on the winning team, he's on the losing team. He's on team Satan by dabbling in magic and the dark arts and and he confesses his sin. He places his faith in Christ alone for his salvation and he leaves all of the magic and all of the sorcery behind and he follows Christ. I imagine that Felix was one of the men, one of the women in Acts chapter 19 who burned the books. You know the text I'm talking about. It was maybe the most expensive bonfire in the history of the Bible. What would happen is so many sorcerers came to Christ in Ephesus that they had all these books. They had these textbooks that were worth a lot of money and they could have sold them on Facebook Marketplace, but they didn't. Instead, they had a bonfire. Acts 19 tells us that bonfire Contained 50,000 drachmas worth of sorcery textbooks. You put that in today's money, a drachma was about a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. In today's money, that was a $7 million bonfire. That was the commitment to Christ for these sorcerers. That was the impact that Jesus was having on the economy in Ephesus. And it wasn't just the sorcery, it was Artemis worship. Because people would come from all around the world, they'd come to Ephesus, they'd worship Artemis, and before they'd leave, they'd need to buy a silver replica of Artemis so that they could go home and worship her at their home, like when you go on a family trip and you buy a bobblehead, like something like that, right? That's what these tourists would do. They'd buy this statue of Artemis. And there was a man, Book of Acts, his name was Demetrius. He was a silversmith. His job was to to sell these replicas. And he was losing all sorts of money because these worshipers would come to Ephesus. They'd worship, come to worship Artemis, but they'd follow Jesus and they'd leave without buying his replica. And he was losing thousands of dollars. So he gathers all the silversmiths together and they form this giant riot. It goes from hundreds of people to thousands of people. They go storming down the Arcadian Way right in the middle of Ephesus. They start chanting and screaming. They descend on the theater, a theater in Ephesus that sat 24 thousand people. This giant outdoor amphitheater, it's filled to the brim. And the entire theater in this riot incited by Demetrius is shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They go on and on and on. And Paul knows it's his fault. So Paul's thinking, well, maybe I should just go on stage and address address the crowd. And everyone says, Paul, that's a terrible idea. You're going to literally get yourself killed. So they keep Paul from going on stage. That riot happened about two and a half years into Paul's time in Ephesus, and he knew his time was coming to a close. But imagine if you're a man like Felix. It had been seven years in 62 AD since the riot, since the last time you saw your hero of the faith, and he missed Professor Paul deeply. Or imagine that you're a woman named Iris. Not a historical figure, another person that I've invented. Iris was a priestess to Artemis. She made a living in the temple. Now remember Artemis, Greek goddess of fertility and the field, which is a big deal in an ancient culture. If you want to succeed as a culture, two things must be true you have to be able to have kids and you have to be able to grow food. If neither one of those things are happening, your society is dead on arrival. So, What would happen in this culture is if a family was struggling with infertility or if they were in a drought and they needed rain. They believed that they somehow needed to get Artemis to act on their behalf. So the family would send a a man from the household to the temple of Artemis, would perform immoral acts with a priestess, in a way to entice the gods to act on their behalf. A horrendous evil. Iris was one of those priestesses. For decades, had performed sex acts with countless individuals. She thought she was being religious. You and I would say she suffered incredible trauma and incredible abuse, but she knew better. She knew that something was wrong. She had been shattered on the inside and broken over all of the trauma she'd walked through. And she didn't know a way out. One day she heard her neighbors gossiping about this Jewish sect called the Way. They didn't have anything good to say about it, but something pricked her mind. And she thought, maybe I should go to the hall of Tyrannus and listen to that Paul speak. So she does. And just like Felix, she's cut to the heart. She hears about this Jesus who died to take away her sin. And for the first time, she has real answers to the pain that she's been carrying for decades. And she leaves everything behind. She places her faith in Christ and becomes a staple in the church at Ephesus. And it didn't come without a cost. Her salvation was free, but it wasn't cheap. She left behind everything. Her friends didn't talk to her. Her family rejected her. She even got death threats from the priests at the temple. But for her, it was all worth it because there was nothing better than following Jesus. Or imagine what it would be like to be Timothy. You know Timothy. Paul's mentee. He received First and Second Timothy, our books in the New Testament. But the New Testament doesn't paint a very rosy picture of Timothy. He seems timid. He seems sickly and weak. Not the exact type of person I would expect to be the pastor in the church at Ephesus. If I had to guess, the church in Ephesus was the largest church that Paul planted. He was there for two and a half years. People came from all around the world. The picture Acts 18 through 20 paints is that literally thousands of people were coming and getting saved. I can imagine this was a huge church. And Paul leaves Timothy as the pastor in Ephesus. The book of Revelation actually gives us a snapshot of what things were like in in Ephesus. Maybe you remember one of the letters that the church received in the early part of Revelation. There were some encouraging things to say, but there was a very condemning critique. Jesus tells them, you've abandoned your first love. That's the church at Ephesus, but it makes sense. Remember their background. They're in the devil's playground, their sorcery and black magic. The devil is all around them. They're in the middle of this center of Artemis worship. Everyone knows what they're against. They're filled with the doctrine. They're filled with truth. But what do they lack? They lack love. So for a church that's filled with doctrine, but doesn't have love, what do you think happens? A lot of this. There's a lot of disunity. There were fractions that were building within the church at Ephesus. And Timothy is this timid, weak guy. He's not the guy that's going to come in and put a stamp down on the disunity. There's these false teachers that are rising through the ranks. Timothy doesn't really know what to do. All he wants is for Pastor Paul to come back and preach a revival week and set everybody straight once and for all. But it had been five years since Timothy had seen him, probably seven years since he'd stepped foot in the church at Ephesus. And people don't even know who Paul is anymore. And Timothy's left to try to lead this congregation that is anything but unified. And that's, that's when Tychicus walks in. The day before the Sabbath, Tychicus comes in. Timothy knows who he is. He's, he's good friends. They've both worked under Paul. And he gives Timothy this huge hug and greets him, a greeting from his hero in the faith. But Timothy can't help but notice there's something in his hand. He's holding a scroll. And in the scroll is a letter that Paul has written, not to Timothy, but to the entire church at Ephesus. And the next day, when the church gathers in their house churches for worship, instead of their sermon, instead of their homily, they open up the letter and they hear from Pastor Paul, someone who they hadn't even seen in seven years someone who they looked up to as the hero of the faith. Some even would call him their best friend. So tonight, we're going to receive the letter the same way that the church at Ephesus did. We're going to hear it. These letters weren't initially read. They were read out loud to the church. So we're going to do the same thing. So you're going to hear me say something that you will never hear me say again. If you have your Bible, I want you to close it. If you have your Bible app open, I want you to close it. I don't want you to follow along tonight. Instead, I want you just to listen. You can even close your eyes if you want, as long as you promise not to put your head on the table and start snoring. (laughs) But I want you to, (laughs) I want you to imagine what it would be like to be Iris. What it would be like to be Felix. What it would be like to be Timothy or Aquila or Priscilla, a believer in the church at Ephesus after not hearing from Paul for five or seven years to get this letter from your hero in the faith. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ By God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy And blameless in love before him, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we've also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I never stopped giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who were called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect. The law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ to the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. This grace was given to me, the least of all of the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles, the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church, to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness." Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who's the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part." Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that's corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what's good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this, every sexually immoral or impure or gritty person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is even shameful to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it said, get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention, then, how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living." but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or, or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training an instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the day of evil and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are, and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, um, we're thankful for your word that you have so graciously and generously given to us that we don't have to worry or question what your will is for us, what your desire is for us. That so clearly you've laid out for us in your word, your plan, your purpose, your desire. And, And tonight we just pause to praise you for all of the spiritual blessings that you've given us in Christ that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent Christ to die in our behalf, that we are saved by grace. What a gift.